0: Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuels. And with the new Bowsers at Queensland Raceway, it's never been easier to source your racing fuel trackside. Elf Race 102 is imported racing fuel direct from Europe, offering power and protection. The Elf Race 102 is a popular fuel with racers seeking gains over pump fuel. Improve your lap times with Elf Race 102. Racefuels.com.au for all your fuel at the racetrack. This is the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast and your hosts, Darren Smith and Gary O'Brien. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to episode number 40 of the now famous Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast. And I say now famous. Because, uh, well, it's always been my fine self. So that gets infamy. But of course, when Gaz arrives, you just become famous. Gary, welcome to episode 40. It's got to be, you've got to be now famous now that we've done 40 of these together. The fact that you and I've been in the virtual room together 40 times over the last 18 months is, is got to be famous.
1: Oh, thank you, famous Daz. Uh, yeah, from being in the uh, comms box at all around Australia, calling, uh, the shadows nationals to um, then ending up on a virtual comms box. What a what a journey! Well, it feels as though over the last couple of
0: months that uh, the the virtual comms box is probably going to be my home for uh, the next little while. But uh, hopefully, the Victorian scene will stay true to me, and I'll still uh, still get that uh, rolling on for twenty twenty four. Gaz, um, the, the whole season's really come close to a close hasn't it It was just absolutely frantic over the last
1: eight nine weeks and it's uh the door is shut hasn't it well now we're ciphering through all the calendars that are starting to appear for everything that's going on next year whether it be uh club events state championships national championships and all the way up to obviously supercars and formula one but um, we did have an interlude where we shared the comps box this year. We did it at a couple of the Shannon's Trophy events. Yeah, we did. The three-round um, series, which, uh,
0: which I did share two of them with you at Queensland Raceway and Sydney Motorsport Park. And a little bit of the bend. A little bit of the bend. Yeah, yeah. So that was good, unfortunately, yeah. for the two of us. The Shannon's Trophy series is um, shelved for the 2020. Our year. lifeblood's gone. Yeah, well, there you go. Our relevance, again, slipping. <laughs> Um, Talking about relevance, our next <laughs> guest does not have the same problem we do. His relevance just seems to grow in stature. And a famous quote from the great fellow himself is that he left Queensland, came to Victoria and increased the IQ of both states on one uh, on one movement. <laughs> I speak of uh, a great bloke of Australian motorsport, Paul Zitti. Welcome to the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast.
2: Daz and Gaz, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here uh, to join. I, I suppose it's now life begins for the podcast.
1: It does. Well, we, all we're, get, we're over the hill now, aren't we? <laughs> we're on the downward. He's, he's <laughs> right. He's writing the rest of the script as well. What a sound of it! <laughs> <It's> Taking over. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Paul. Thank Great you. to have you for eleventh Race Fuels podcast, our fortieth in total
0: time to time to celebrate and and it is actually the uh the big slide into uh into christmas and uh just before we arrive paul you uh, you said you're off to the usa for uh, for christmas this year.
2: yeah we've got some very very good friends from the gold coast uh Dana and jen choosing to get married in quebec at the ice hotel on the 9th of january and we're heading over there to join them but Canada's a little bit cold that time of year, so we're taking the opportunity to fly into Vegas, uh, go and do some hiking around Zion National Park and the Grand Canyon for a week or so before we head further north.
0: Better than what uh, I'm doing. I'll be staying in Melbourne for the best part of Christmas and then uh, off down the, uh, the west coast of Victoria. What about yourself, Gaz? i
1: staying in Sydney. Uh, we'll do the Park Selvers Festival the second week of January. That's about it.
0: Lovely, lovely. Well, Paul, where you're going, you'll probably see some Elvis impersonators as well.
2: Well, I would imagine I might even see Gaz there,
1: <laughs> <laughs> unless they move Parks to Elvis uh, Parks Elvis to uh, <laughs> well, Las might Vegas.
2: Might be live streamed, right? You'll be you'll be famous enough for that. <laughs>
0: Well, we were the first people to do live streaming in Australian motorsport with uh, with the Shannon's Nationals all those years ago. So maybe Gaz could uh, be the first one to live stream the Parks Elvis uh, Festival onto the uh, MGM Grand Stage. We digress, boys. This is the Grace Fuels Grass Roots <laughs> Racing Podcast. Paul, I always open the, the podcast with um, your... The question is your very first memory of motorsport racing, whatever it might be, it can be a rally stage, a speedway, a go-kart track, whatever it is, your your first memory in the time that you went, I think this might be part of my life.
2: Yeah, look, that's, I, I've heard you ask that on every one of the other 39 podcasts that I've watched, and I expected it would be coming, but it, it's a real tough one for me because I can't remember. I've just always loved cars and racing. I don't know where it comes from. Never was in either side of my family from my parents. But uh, for me, a a young kid growing up in little town of Biloela in central Queensland, it was probably watching the ABC black and white television telecasts of uh, whatever was going around and listening to uh, uh, Mike Raymond commentating the, uh, you had what, Jim Richards in the Big M uh a falcon the the sports sedans the big bangers were a big thing back then so it was it's no one particular thing i can point to it's just if it had an engine it made a lot of noise and it was going fast i just loved it
0: well that's pretty much the same answer that everyone gives and 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 it is interesting paul not everyone can pinpoint that that one particular particular moment i i I certainly have a memory way past being um, 11 years of age in motorsport, but the most defining moment I remember, and um, it's not one of the nicest ones around, but it was when Alan Newton's throttle stuck at Calder and he went off the back straight and uh, put the Elfin MS7 into the wall. And that car to this day remains my most famous racing, almost most most favourite racing car. So yeah, it can be a difficult one. Being that you come from the middle of Queensland, there's got to be somewhere in your memory, your history, even hands on wheel, a Gemini.
2: Oh, definitely. In fact, the first thing, first circuit racing car that I ever owned and drove was a Gemini in the Queensland Gemini series. uh, Bought for the princely sum of about $3,500. Um, not a clue in the world what I was doing. Just bought the car. Uh, I used to just rock up. There were one-day race meetings out at Lakeside. Uh, Went to my licensing lecture, filled out my cams application, rocked up at my first race meeting. They observed me in practice and said, yep, you can stay out there. Um, And and that was it. You do practice, quality, couple of races, one day done and dusted. That was it. Never did a test day. Just... Turned up, went racing and thought, yeah, this is pretty good. Two years of that. And that was when I had the opportunity with the company I was working with at the time to move down to Melbourne. So sold the sold the racing car and to Melbourne we headed.
0: Let's just touch going going back there, Lakeside, which is a, a track that is not used quite as often for open race meetings in in these days. Um back at that particular time there, you know, the Gemini series was was massive and just to be like i said anyone that's come out of queensland and has a has forged a career as a race driver or anything they've had their hands on a Gemini at some point because it sadly it didn't reach the rest of australia but it was so popular in in queensland was there anything that i guess from putting the car on the trailer to taking it off the trailer dealing with with entries and race secretaries and clerks of course was there anything you learned from those first couple of years and and going to lakeside to go racing
2: i think i learned about the uh certainly the administrative side yeah getting the entry forms in on time and of course there wasn't the flurry of activity to get a uh, a, a garage because there weren't any <laughs> it was always under the, uh, the Gemini Association would always organise a marquee and you just have a marquee space that you were parked under. Um, I think it was just the the process of making sure you had everything done, right? It's, it's, is your race kit packed? Is you, did you get your entry in on time? In my case, I didn't own a trailer, so I did a deal with the local hire me trailer place so I could go grab a trailer. Did I have that organised? Just all those little bits. When it comes to the actually racing itself, as I say, was clueless. Was I had never done the karting thing. I'd never done any of that. Saved up, bought first house. this opportunity to get a cheap car. Um, I was the the company I was working with at the time was a metals distributor, and and we were giving some free steel to Dick Johnson Racing at the time. So I got to go out there, and, and as the local petrol head in the company, they they threw me at that. And uh, Neil Lowe, who was the manager out there at the time I got chatting with him and said look you know long time long time fan first time competitor what should I do do I start in carts And he said well at your age you know clearly a a career as a driver is not gonna not gonna be an option he hadn't even seen me drive by then (laughs) that's Uh, brutal isn't it uh, (laughs) but but he said what year are we talking
1: what what years we talking here when do you start what year was that Um,
2: uh, it was '93, uh, so August '92 bought bought the first house. Gillian uh, and I bought our first house, and that was the thing, right? We'd saved hard, we'd we'd got the house. So '90 90, August '92, so about November '92, I took delivery of this uh, Gemini, and 1993 got my cams license for the first time and went racing.
1: You didn't do the uh, Oran Park reverse direction event, did you? When the Gemini's came down there.
2: No, no, I, um, I'm trying to remember if that was. I'm sure that was before I
1: was. Might racing. be before. Yeah,
2: yeah. But no, it was so strong at that time in in Queensland, and you know the names that, as you say, it was it was that thing. You know, I don't think Queensland's never been really strong on on the open wheel racing, um, but the the tin top stuff's always been pretty pretty popular up there.
1: So when you moved down to Victoria, how, how were you going to progress with your car racing if you'd sold your car and obviously moved jobs?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that we were already toying with at that point was whether or not to try rallying. As I say, when it comes to motorsport, I'm a kid in a candy shop. Um, not growing up with being pushed in one direction or another, I just loved it all. So my first motorsport of any competition type was uh, as a 19, 20-year-old I had and uh, talk about the cars you wish you still had four door XB uh, 351 Cleveland top loaded <laughs> gearbox yeah. uh, nine inch nine inch LSD um, it was my daily driver so it wasn't out of control but it was a uh, um, it, it was look it was healthy it was would have been a genuine 300 horsepower flywheel which back then was okay it uh, I think at least got to well banked to the the street drags with it drive it out there have the play, drive it home. Um, I think it, I think my best time, it only just snuck just into the high 14s. Um, but, so that was my first competition. I used to go to Speedway and help crew on sprint cars with with mates um, and friends that were rallying. I'd go and service or do road closures for them. So I did a couple of years of circuit racing, thought we might go rallying. So when we moved down here, I joined the Ford 4 Car Club and they were very they've always been a a very strong rallying club
0: being being that most of them have escorts yes
2: absolutely (laughs) yeah and girlfriends Um... (laughs) strangely (laughs) strangely I just got to say
0: before you you advance on from your xb and you're going down the strip for the last 20 years or so Paul you've always been such a clean cut lad with the, the right haircut and all that sort of thing but this mop of hair that you've been rocking around with for about a year or so now, is that is that a bit of a throwback to the drag and the XB down at Willow Bank?
2: Look, I did have a spectacular 80s mullet in the day. <laughs> um, in fact, my one claim to fame is that uh, would have been, oh, I can't remember, when did Pat Cash win Wimbledon? We're talking eighty three. No, it's got to be later than that. It's I'm thinking late 80s, 89 maybe.
1: Ooh,
0: uh, not
2: that late. We weren't pulling
0: our socks over our tracksuit pants into the late 80s. Let's ask
2: Dr. Google, but um, I think Gaz is doing that right now. (laughs) I had a 1988 KE Laser, which was the sensible car we got to replace the XB when we got engaged, and we used to drive that from Brisbane back to Billowheel, and the stopover point was uh, Banban Springs, um, a town of about three people, and I walked out from having paid for the fuel with the spectacular 80s mullet. And 87.
0: Ended, 87. 87, well, there you go. I apologise, you Paul, you're onto it.
2: So in, uh, in in 88, 89, this young lady, as I was walking out, looked up and went, Oh my God, are you Pat Cash? <laughs> and,
1: and you said wanting,
2: yes. <laughs> not wanting to let her down, I said yes, I am. And I even signed an autograph for her. So uh, somewhere in central Queensland, there's a young lady who thinks she's got Pat Cash's autograph. Oh, I,
0: I'd say Lucky Jill was her. with you that
2: night. <laughs> for whom I'm not sure, but yes, yeah, someone lucky.
0: So sorry, you joined the Ford Four Car Club here in, uh, in Melbourne.
2: Yeah, and uh, and that's probably where my, well, it's not probably it's absolutely where my volunteering in the uh, in, in Clubland uh, came in. So Daryl McHugh was the president at the time. Andrew McCarthy was heavily involved in the car club. Um, they both, you know, co-opted me into initially it was just um, being on rally directing teams uh, we ran the spring 200 which was a round of the club rally series and alan patterson uh, ran what was the famous at that stage rally win tv rally in the valley which was a, a vrc but it ran over a day and a half um it was yeah a mini mini rally in melbourne if you will it was a superb event so got involved with directing teams there and got on to the committee, ran their sprint series for them for a couple of years as the sprint secretary, Clark of Coursing, all of those events, including the uh, famous Cup Day Sprint at Sandown, uh, and then was um, vice president of the club for a couple of years. And, and in that period, purchased a Mark I Cortina and um, did some crosses in that, also the daily driver. So I was driving that to work every day uh roll cage harnesses the lot and um did a season of rallying um crashed it twice <laughs> <laughs> and uh that was you know at, at the end of that Gillian went yep rallying's fun i'd happily do a couple of events a year but it's not something i want to be heading off doing six seven events a year i'd seen enough of rallying at that point to realize that there was more drivers than navigators and thought well maybe maybe circuit racing um, might be the way to go. By then, I would met Michael Borland. And uh, through the, the company I was with at the time was a company called Steelmark. Uh, they were a metals distributor. Uh, I was in the aluminium department specifically. And I knew of Borland Racing Developments and what they were doing. So when I moved down here, I just dropped by to see them. and say, look, you know, um, like what you do, uh, next time you need some material, give me a call. Uh, worst thing, I'll prove that you're buying well. Best thing, I might be able to save you some money.
0: Just before you move on from the the Ford 4 Car Club, um, which is one of at least Victoria's most active clubs over a, a massive longevity, many, many decades uh, involved in the sport and your career. I'm preempting things a little bit here. You, you've spent a long time with Formula Ford. Was there any... People in the Ford 4 car club, because it is a classic fit, a Formula Ford with a four-cylinder engine in it, um, you know, a Formula car, was there many people in the Ford 4 car club that were into that open-wheeler aspect of four-cylinder Fords? Um,
2: not a huge amount. There was Myself, like in the piece, um, Paul Tippins um, had an oh, 86, van diemen i think and he did some sprints um in that for a couple of seasons but they were primarily your 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 small forwards um cortinas escorts um etc as just uh you know anglias and the like so your your small sedans capris rather than um the the open wheelers per se
0: yeah gotcha Uh, so the the just going back to your Cortina, there's a, there's a bit of a lineage, say with uh, Craig Lowndes, that he has a also has a Mark One Cortina in his shed that he treasures.
2: Yeah, look, his and his obviously a lot nicer. Mine, um, mine was certainly nothing of, of note and far from pristine. Um, it was built to you know throw at the scenery, which is exactly what <laughs> we did with it, um, and had a ton of fun. It was. Yeah, you know, and, and that stuff was cheap then, right? Uh, back again with the who knew. Um,
0: well, it's it is interesting, and and you're obviously you've you've um you've migrated south, and what a good way to learn your your, your new home state because rallying sends you to all far flung corners of the state, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and and beautiful areas as as well, right? I'm a, you know as we touched on earlier. I'm a bush kid, and even though I've lived two thirds of my life in the city. Um, that, that's something that's never left me. And I'm far, far more comfortable and, and, and at peace with trees and countryside around me as distinct from uh, an urban landscape. So getting out into the forest is just a magnificent place to be, particularly when you've, you know, the, how's the serenity and uh, the sound of, you know, twin weavers at nine and a half thousand RPM.
0: <laughs> that, that sweet, sweet induction noise of 48 IDAs, hey? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Oh, one of the best noises I think I've ever heard it was um, uh, John Brand had a um I'm sure it was a 260Z, not a 240Z, but that thing had triple weavers off the side and the induction noise was louder than the exhaust noise. You could, you know, to, to do a, a road closure on a still night, you'd hear him leave the start control <laughs> and just hear the thing coming and he could pedal too. He, he drove that thing beautifully. And it just it just howled.
0: Did you rally against anyone of note in that in that uh, couple of years you did that?
2: We were doing intro stuff, so not not so much when I was rallying myself, but certainly when we were officiating. Uh, you know, we were our car club also used to run a couple of stages of ROM, and I um, used to run the uh, be the sector well, sector marshal, the stage, the point stage marshal, commander. or something. Marshal. Well, for the spectator point out of um, Marysville. And so you'd be up there and that was, you know, Ed and Possum and Simon Evans and um, Cody Crocker and, you know, all the guys were uh, coming through. Spencer Martin, you know, these guys were just legends and you'd you'd watch them coming through. And, you know, you just, the, the bunting would be, people would be standing Right up to the edge of the bunting, and you'd go and move them back from where they are. And they say, we're oh, we behind the bunting. And you go, Yeah, well, when the guys did recce, that bunting wasn't there. What it was was that huge gum tree behind you on this left hand corner. And I can guarantee you that if none of the others, certainly Simon Evans is going to have noticed that gum tree. And that bunting ain't going to be there after he goes through. And, and sure enough, they were just millimetres off that tree. mod yes, I might add, Race <laughs> Fuels
0: Grassroots Racing podcast, very own Simon Evans, as you will be now known, Paul. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, I mean, what a driver. Will it make him famous, though? <laughs> Should do. Just, yeah,
2: just absolutely awesome. So it was to watch those guys and, and, and be up close, as they go through. And I think the best thing about it is they were just ripper guys as well. There was no, no attitude when you were on a finish control or a start control and they were in, they're all, you know, just, I think what came through is how much they loved what they were doing. They were just passionate and enthusiastic.
0: One of the, one of the great things, Paul, and you're already exuding it is that Gary and I get out of doing this and we've done it 40 times is um, everyone we get on here and, sadly um and it's happening right now sadly it's a it's an audio only podcast or 99 of people gladly but yeah. there's there's yourself as the guest and insert name here paul Ziddy for, for this one and gary and i and we're all doing this we're all yeah. smiling we're all passionate about <laughs> motorsport it doesn't matter what yeah. the genre but we're all just like having a having a, a good old a good old chat um paul you mentioned you you next you know you'd had the, the time with the ford four car club and um a great old time with a, with a very famous car club as well. And you um, you know, famously walked in and said to Mike Ballen, I think I can supply you the steel at a at a at a better deal for you.
2: Well the steel or aluminium, just see what was going on there and 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 yeah, and uh, sort of um was able to as I got to know more about what he was using, because part of what we did was processing so there'd be off cuts which would normally just go into the scrap bin at scrap value and I got to learn the stuff that was worthwhile to him and you'd put that aside and we we're able to do, it, do some deals there and um, obviously struck up a friendship through that initial relationship, um, kind of got on. Um, I said, would you mind if someone with absolutely no experience at anything whatsoever came and wiped dead bugs off the race cars at the track, um, which is I started going to the track and just sort of hanging out with the team and you know, washing wheels, that sort of thing. Um, I think at the end of '98, they were building a batch of 1007s, and that was back when you'd go racing all year, and then you'd have these. When everyone else goes on holiday, the factory would have these three mental months where, in three months, they just build all the cars that had been sold, ready for the start of the next season. And so, in that um, in that period, I'd head off from Glen Waverley, drive to work at Clayton. Um, be at my desk at 7:30 in the morning, working away. Finish at 4:30. Had to change of clothes in the car, drive down to Brayside, put on the uh, put on the work clothes, and help build race cars until midnight. Um, and just absolutely loved it. Do that, you know, going there on a Saturday and screw cars together, and th- that was just fabulous. Getting all the cars, we still at the photos of you know. 10 sets of uprights all assembled ready to bolt onto the cars and (laughs) just really, really good times. Um, and so through that end of 2000, uh, there'd been a change of ownership in the company I was working for. And it's probably the first time that kind of got the sense that selling steel something I fell into out of school and was good to me, probably not what I wanted to do. So there were some packages flying around. I've stuck my hand up for a voluntary one. Um, was contemplating the navel at home doing some landscaping working out what I might want to do and uh, I get a phone call from from Mike saying um uh, do you want a week's work because um uh the the new race season was upon them and uh with Nicholas their son having arrived unexpectedly early um Tracy hadn't been able to all the admin that she'd planned to do before Nick arrived Hadn't happened, and and so I came in for a week to um, just book some flights and accommodation and hire cars to get them sorted for the season. And one thing led to another with phone calls for a couple of sponsorship proposals that I pulled together and got that and delivering a couple of parts on that. And we got through to about I think we went from about March to August in in a blink of an eye and. Mike said if you're not doing anything Saturday, you should come over for a Bundy and we'll talk about what's happening because it doesn't look like you're going away. Um, <laughs> just just go back to
0: that that 98 where you said you, you walked in the door. 98 was a, a ripping year for Spectrum, wasn't it? Like that was uh I, I guess look, where they the, hoisted the flag to the top of the pole.
2: Yeah, one-two, in fact, uh, mm. in the championship with uh with Adam Macro and with uh Christian Jones. So just that, yeah, uh, a real uh I suppose they've been so close, right? Runner-up with Bargs in the Spectrum 05 in, uh, yeah, 90... What do I want to say? I want to say 95. Um, would have been Jason one or runner-up. Yep. Um yep. So, you know, kind of knew that things were there. And then, of course, the 06 was the next evolution. And, um, you know, right, right drivers, right car. And that, you know, the 96 was just in its era, um, really was... A step ahead again, and um, which was shown with the number of 06s and 07s sevens that were sold over those next couple of years. But it was a it was a real uh, watershed year for them.
0: Yeah, I guess, and there there would have been um, there would have been some tight heads around the place, but I guess a big push to take take full advantage of. And and as Mike you know alluded to when we spoke to him, was that he just wanted to go racing, and the fact that he could he was starting to build cars that were winning races. And a championship was was just buoyed him, and he said he, you know, he ran out of energy eventually. But it was a decade further down the road.
2: Yeah, uh, definitely. It sort of, you know, I, I think it was a a, a worthy um, justification of, of of his talent as an engineer and a constructor. Um, the the cars had been good enough for some time. It was just waiting for the for the the right chips to fall and it, it proved what could be done, and, and obviously since then. Um, so, you know, it's been valid, validated all around the
1: world. I guess uh, the next stage is you getting behind the world of a Spectrum Formula Ford. How did all that happen?
2: Well, uh, yeah, so I, as I say, I'd, I'd done the rallying thing, and I thought, you know, maybe some, some circuit racing might be for me. And and so I'd said to Mike, look, you know, if there's an opportunity, you um, What would it cost just to go and do some laps and see what a Formula Ford is like and not only see what one is like, but, you know, make sure I'm, I I don't, by then i had done enough through Geminis and rallying and things like that and seen some seriously talented guys that I'd already, you know, I had the quiet cry in the corner about having to realise that the thing I loved so much I actually was lousy at. Note
0: no um, to self, Gaz. I, I need to take myself off later into the corner and just have a cry about yeah. <laughs> lost decades.
2: <laughs> but you know what? I, I, to an extent, I think that was a blessing in disguise. Of course, it was how how modest or, or or lack of what lack of talent I had because it it was liberating in in two ways. One, it meant that my motorsport was had to be about fun obviously challenging myself. I'm a competitive guy. So uh, if I can't beat everyone else, I at least want to try and go, don't don't take that the wrong way. I want to beat myself. Plenty of people tell me I do that. (laughs) But but you want to keep improving on your own times and you want to push yourself to, to, to do the best you can. But because I knew I wasn't going to be racing for championships, all this sheep stations crap that you see didn't apply to me. If I did a PB time and finished last, I got out with the biggest smile in the paddock. Mm. So that's all that it was about. The other thing is, never had money growing up, even back then, uh, didn't have a lot. And if I'd actually been good at motorsport, I think that would have been almost heartbreaking. Because there was no way in the world that I would have the money to do anything about it. So it it really was uh, a blessing in disguise. And, you know, I'm very okay with that now, but it was a case of just jumping in a car and and seeing what it was like. So I had a run in a a spectrum out at Calder Park, which was still going back then. Um, And it was a little bit like the, um, you you know, your local drug dealer will give you the first hit free.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Mike. (laughs) Yep.
2: I got out of that car at the end of that day and it was like, yep, how do we do more of this? <laughs> yeah. um, and and so yeah, we went looking for a for a Formula Ford, worked out what I realistically had to spend and you know, Mike true to his nature. Um at that point the the Spectrum 06s weren't that old. They were still getting, you know, really good money. Most of them had Motec dashes, et cetera. Um, they they were genuinely out of out of my budget. Um and he said, you, you know, something like a 90, 93 Van Diemen would be right in right in your, your hitting zone. And so he helped me go shopping for a 93 Van Diemen, which is what we found. Bought um, Brendan Beacom's car. Um, I think he was, um, mates. it was garaged up in Bayswater with, um, uh, I think, Dale Rogers had a little MG in there as well. Um, so, yeah, we bought that car and raced that for a couple of years and and just had a ball. Again, would have done maybe two test days the whole time. Um didn't still really didn't know what I was doing, just having a ton of fun. In a, um, in an
0: in an era, Paul, where people were doing two test days before each round, weren't they?
2: Oh uh, yeah. And and again, I'm I'm not saying I didn't know testing in terms of the fact that and that's why I didn't win, <laughs> but it was just in terms of development and knowing um what I was doing and what I've, I've learned since then, um, you know, you'd have gone about things are uh, somewhat different. But you drove, different
0: you drove a, um, a Formula V at one point around that same time, didn't you?
2: I did a race in a Formula V, Eric Irvine's car. So in the years, so after that, sold that car, then left Steelmark, started working full-time at Borlands. Well, you know, there were, I was at the racetrack more than I'd been in my entire life, but, Never with a never with my bum in a race car, right? So it was back to um, every two years, I'd um, I'd have to do a lease deal on a car um, to to do a race meeting to maintain the license. So it was typically Island Magic. You'd um, end of the season um, jump in a car somewhere and go into a race meeting just to get that signature in the license for the next two years, and uh, one of them. Uh, By then, I owned a few cars or being leased out, but wouldn't you know it, uh, by then, I think, I can't remember that year, five, maybe six. I owned five or six Spectrums um, and they were all at the race meeting, but they they had paying customers in them, so (laughs) that wasn't going to work and I needed to do a license (laughs) keeper. so um, uh, Quentin Crombie, who I'd met uh, when he was um, working at uh, Cams as it was then, and and later on with the AMSF, um, he'd raced the full Victorian Formula V Championship, um, leasing that car from Eric. And I got to know Eric through that um, that connection. And so yeah, I had a, a, a 1200 V. It was a ton of fun.
0: You can't go past them. Something you just said, then Paul, that you owned five or six Spectrum Formula Fords that were being. Leased out? Is it is owning Formula Fords and leasing them out akin to opening your wallet and setting fire to everything in it, or is it something <laughs> that um, done well you can you can sort of get away with?
2: Look, it was good. It was good for me. Um, no two ways about that. Um, I was in a very fortunate situation where um, Mike had uh, decided to buy a factory. Um, instead of renting so that's kind of where his capital went and it was a point where he um, rather than having his capital tied up in cars that were being leased to customers that was something I was able to buy those cars so free that capital up for him and because I was leasing the cars to people who were then contracting ball and racing to run them um, I had Really good control over ensuring they were properly maintained, etc. The risk you run is that um, someone rolls it into a ball, and even they got a contract that says you bend it, you mend it. Someone you know rolls it in the ball and says, "Well, bad luck. I don't have the money. Come sue me." You, you're up. You know you're you're in a world of hurt. But you know, fortunately for me, that that situation never eventuated. So it, it's not something you're going out and buying private jets or yachts. From, and at the end of the day, you'd probably, you know, if I'd taken that uh, money in,
1: Only Darren can afford to lease out private jets.
2: Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the reality is like most of these things, if you'd if you'd taken that money and um, stuck it in a nice, boring, um, you know, index fund or something like that at the time over the journey, you would probably have done better, um, but it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun and at the end of it, It's provided for me, you know, most of them you'd lease for a few years and sell, but some I was able to keep and race myself um, or put aside and and keep. You know, I'm still really um, proud of the the very first Spectrum I ever owned and leased out was in 2002, the Spectrum 09 that Mark Winterbottom drove. Hmm. And I've still got that car now. We've restored it to the original livery. It's on display down in the um, uh, visitor centre at Phillip Island. So that's your car, yeah,
0: and it always has been. Yep. Wow. Okay, that's a good good bit of lineage. Any uh, are you contractually obliged to keep secret these any of the other drivers that drove your cars, Paul?
2: No. Look, well, I mean, the with the exception, I think. Um, well, no, I think the exception of John Martin and Paul Laskazeski, who both owned their cars. Um, the other cars in the Rising Star program. Uh, were mine.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, the car I race currently, the uh, the JPS. The Jill's pretty special. Number six. The, spectrum, indeed, she is. is. Yes, indeed. She yes. Is. yes. Yeah. Um, got to be to put up with me. Yep. Um, uh, I describe our family situation as Jillian, Jillian having one child from her first marriage. <laughs>
0: And she tucks him in every night. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yep. just, yeah. just, well, just on so that. Um, you um you just hit one situation right on the head that I, I had in my notes to to talk to you about. And this is getting off Paul Ziddy your life journey, but it is part of your life journey. The um the rising star program was really launched with you guys. And you've just told me something that I I didn't know about you owning those cars apart from John and Paul. And let's face it, if I look back, there's been a lot of names come through that program, but those two in that year was some of the most torrid formula Ford racing you would ever want to see and really nail abiding stuff. And, and what was your involvement? Cause, um, uh, quentin crombie was heavily involved in the rising star program as well what 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 was your involvement in all of that
2: yeah so um by uh, by that stage i'm working full-time at uh at Ballands, um answering the phone so you know mike didn't have to um because that's not his thing he likes making stuff not talking to people he and... likes a
0: gray dust coat not a uh, not a not a telephone
2: exactly Got the got a phone call from a uh, a young Cameron Dungan who was working at CAMS at the time, and and said, um, uh, I, "You know, uh, my boss Quentin and I um, would, you yeah, know, we're, we're kicking around this idea of a um, a driver development program, and um, wanted to get your thoughts on it." I said, well, yeah, I think it's, in principle, it sounds like a great idea, but, um, you know, do you want to come down to Brayside? Um, coming up, look around the factory, we'll have a chat about this. And and so that's really, that's first time I met Quentin um, and showed the tour of them around the factory what we were doing there, the cars we were building. And we, we started talking about this Rising Star program concept that they had, um, and uh, it Progressed from there to them calling for tenders. Um, we ran the initial pilot program, which was in 2005. Um, and they were happy enough with the results from that that uh, the, the program grew for 2006. Um, and we ran that through until I'm trying to remember the last year that we ran it. Um, 2010, 11, something like that? 10, 11 is what I'm yeah. thinking, yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah, had some, yeah, some, some great names and some great success uh, through that program. But, uh, yeah, so in 2005, um, Rising Stars ran at um, national level only. Um, So there's two drivers at national level. So our state championship campaign was and even younger, and neither of them were in, um, um, no, Alaska might have, actually Lasker might have had Rising Star backing at the state level, so I've um, done myself a disservice there, but yeah, Alaska was in state level, so it was Paul Laskazeski and John Martin, and they did the full Vic and the full New South Wales series. And in fact, um, <laughs> New South Wales, between the pair of them, didn't drop a pole position, didn't drop a race.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, it was a massive Sorry. program in that, that that initial phase, wasn't it? So that's yeah. all bubbling away on in the background. You're answering phones and um, ordering steel and doing late nights. And Mike's got the design board out and got his cat out. And people coming through the the place with surnames like Bendel and all these, you know, legends yeah. of the sport that you're, you know, you're rubbing shoulders with. You jump back in the in the car from. From my records, around about 2011, and you've pretty much stayed in national Formula Ford or state Formula Ford competition ever since.
2: Yeah, so it would have been 2013, which is uh, around GFC time. We we pushed on for a couple of years, and became apparent that getting a real job again was going to be a thing. So that that sort of closed the chapter on you know certainly 12 of the best best years of my working life and probably 12 of the best years of my life and uh, which is not to say that there wasn't some bloody hard work in there with the racing we were doing yeah you know, i think there was one year i worked well, i was basically um jillian's phantom husband because you just were always away working <laughs> and you know you'd phone into you'd phone into um 30th birthdays or um engagement parties etc um and I don't say that with, with regret. Obviously, I'm sorry I wasn't at those events, but I mean, I was just doing something that I could not believe I had the opportunity to do. If you'd told me at, at 14 that that's something that was going to be a part of my life, I'd have, I'd have laughed at you. So it was just, you know, an amazing, amazing time in my life. Um, and, but... and
0: indeed, Paul, in Australian Formula Ford, an amazing time to be in Formula Ford and right at the cold face doing those commercial deals and you know and and string it all together. And I remember because I was a supplier to Borlands back then that you'd go past the place and and at late at night the lights were on and the truck was out the front. But during the day, the truck was off a racetrack testing somewhere. Like there was such a program of, of of testing in Formula Ford in that era. Yeah, I
2: think there, there certainly was and and uh... There's the good and the bad that goes with that as well, right? It was, it, it was getting um, quite expensive. And I think that's why, uh, coupled with the GFC, it really did um, fall away for a, for a few years at the end there. The, the people with the disposable income to do that, um, it had been seen that if you weren't able to spend that, I think, yeah, you can be a victim of your own success at times. And uh, I think Formula Ford had a little bit of that and the, the costs are far more... Uh, manageable again now. So you'd come through. I mean, we still weren't where we were in the. I think it was colder in the late nineties. They, um, that was an oversubscribed field. There was, you know, I think the grid density out there was like thirty-eight cars, and there was forty-two entries. Hmm. Um, and so there was. So yeah, you know, we weren't quite at at that level anymore. But it was absolutely. It was. um People were taking this very, very seriously. And, and with good reason, because it was at that point leading to, to careers. Yeah. How and
1: did I mean, you find the uh, how did you find the transition from Kent Engine cars to Juritech
2: Um look, it, it was night and day. Um, like the Kent Engine has been such a wonderful servant over such a long period in Formula Ford in Australia. And um, I I still love them, but the the Durotech's just a better mousetrap. I think in the in the Kent era, if you were a serious national or even state competitor for that matter, you had two engines. One was always better than the other, which is no disrespect to the engine builders. the technology they were working with, you couldn't build them to all be um, identical so mm. you knew which one was which which meant that you put an engine in to go testing and then you pull that one out and put another one in to go racing so there's all that extra labour uh, they were needing rebuilds several times every year um, you know my, my car um, my old E.L. Wagon um, I, I think I could fall asleep it could drive itself to um, Lana Engines in Eltham back in that day <laughs> that's and a long know, old drive across that. Melbourne too yeah yeah the number of trips that i was doing back and forth um with kent engines with you know when you're running um six six cars out of the factory on big programs um it was just this you know constant cycle of engines whereas um now okay i'm not i'm not giving the engine the workout or the testing miles um that that the young gun's going to do but my current car uh, the year that it was new was um, Jaden O'Jada no, drove it. So I've owned it since new. Jaden drove it the first year and last year uh, that engine had its first freshen up. So that that's kind of the mm-hmm. difference you're looking at there and you're never chasing you know misfires or float not, not never obviously you still have components die. Yeah. but they're, they're just so much easier a thing to run.
0: It was um, performance-wise as well. It was an a with the um, the Duratec aspect. Paul, you're, you've driven and owned those those cars as a driver. What did you notice the difference?
2: The being an injected engine uh, and with an ECU, the Duratec makes its power smoothly right through the range. And so, the throttle modulation and the throttle control and application was um, was certainly but much different with the Kent. It was almost you know <laughs> almost like driving a turbo in that when you you know it was coming particularly off a, a, a slow corner where you've got to get back to full throttle. It was you know light touch paper and count to three. So you just wore the thing, and about two seconds later, um, it actually start. Um, start revving Um, so I think that side of it's just a much much smoother power transition Um, interestingly the first year that we went to the Duratex in 06 we stayed with the same five and a half inch rim all round five and a half inch wide rim all round as they ran on the kents and what they discovered by the end of that year is particularly rears you were really not making it you By the last race of the weekend, it was marginal that the rear tires were still actually legal on the minimum tread depth. And so we went to six and seven inch wheels for 2007. And we picked up more time from 2006 to 2007 by by going to wider wheels than we picked up in 2006 when we gave the thing an extra 20 horsepower, 30 horsepower. Because mm. you could suddenly use it. I think. Yeah. So they're um they're now a um yeah, they they're still relatively lightweight. Uh well they're still a lightweight car, they're still relatively low power for the weight. They're a low um overall low grip car, so they still move around, Duratec still move around um as the Kent's did. So the the driving dynamic is still very similar. Still an analog car to drive, still four-speed H pattern, all of that still applies. So heel towing uh on on braking and downshifting is critical. And that, that's something I I'm a fan. That's why it's still the best place in the world to to learn to drive.
0: Paul, bubbling along away, you you did some time you said earlier on as an official, but there has been numerous times where I guess you've been called to or you've been co-opted to to fill in various, uh, I'm going to say senior roles in, within the sport away from the racetrack, away from Borlands, away from the commercial side of things um, in the Victorian State Council, which you, correct me if I'm wrong, you chaired for a number of years as well.
2: Yeah, there was, I mean, it probably started, I was the Victorian delegate to the Formula Ford Association for a number of years. Um, and then later on um, sat as one of the board members on Australian Formula Ford Management Proprietary Limited. Um, and then following on from that was, yeah, on State Council Executive, and then went on to serve for a couple of, um, for a few years as the State Council Chair.
0: And in more recent times as well, you've also been the chairman of the Victorian State Race Series Incorporated, promoting the Victorian State Circuit Racing Championships as the, I guess you'd be called independent chairman on that, in that respect, in that situation.
2: Yeah, so Terry Wade um, held that position for 42 years, a record I had zero intention of challenging. <laughs> um, but that went back to when there was. Uh, Originally, he wasn't an independent chair because there were the five clubs that comprised the um, VSRS Incorporated, being the Mark Sports Car Association. But when they withdrew from promoting around, Terry stayed on as an independent chair. Um, And so with his retirement, um, I was approached uh, by him on behalf of the executive and Asked whether or not I would be um, prepared to to take that role on, which I have done for a number of years now.
0: Going back to driving, you um, you've put yourself into that magnificent JPS Chills pretty special uh, spectrum, and over the last ten years or so, you've run combined Victorian, New South Wales, and national um, Formula Ford racing. You know all over the place. You miss the odd race meeting here or there as a driver, but you tend to be there in—I um, don't know. I'll get you to describe your role that you fulfil when you're not—you're not driving. You're not the team cook, and you're not washing the wheels, but you're certainly um, lending your experience to everyone else around. Where's that all fit now? Is that—is that good for you, or is that just because you're not driving? Look, I still
2: love it. Right, it's—it's it's, uh, a part that. Um, I think for me, motorsport. Obviously, there's the absolute uh, adrenaline rush of being in the car when you're on track, but it's the it's the family, the camaraderie, uh, and the, the the team environment that you um, that really keeps bringing you back as well. So for me, because I do it for fun, and Mike's business is some young guns who have got a point to prove. Uh, we sit down at the start of the season. the, the truck takes three cars. And we look at the calendar once all the serious people have worked out what they're doing and we go right where's there a gap where is there a gap in the truck (laughs) and there's about six gaps paul wants to do about six races happy days and so any state round that um happens to already be chockers i'll rock up there and make a pain of myself um annoy the hell out of everyone in the garage um help bolt cars back together if anyone has an oopsie and and then, of course, go and uh, sit alongside Callum Brannigan leverage you out of your commentator seat. And um, uh, I think w- what we're learning here is when it comes to driving, uh, I make a good commentator and I've got a good face for podcasts.
1: <laughs> I've, <nothing laughs> I've actually got to bring that... I was going to bring that point up about, yeah, have to carry certain members of the commentary team at times at big state racing. Yes. (laughs) Won't mention any names, of course. No, No, but Callum does an amazing job. He does. He does a really good job. Yeah. Yeah. And? Yeah, no,
0: so so you get your you, you get your um you get your fix Paul by by slotting in the in the the truck when there's a when there's a gap so the you know this 20 plus 25 years relationship with you and Mike um let's call it at some point it became a friendship as well and I guess you're filling that place in the truck and it keeps the whole thing viable to head up the highway and Keep racing. Is there a a venue that you when there's a there's a gap in there's a you know there's not a hole in the truck and you go well oh, yeah I, I can't go to X Y Z track. I've got uh, commitments at the daytime job. I don't want to do that one, Mike. Or, or do you just you happy to go wherever?
2: Look, uh, there's not really there's not really a circuit you'd say I, I I don't want to go to. I mean. You know, some people bag QR, they call it the paper clip and they say it's all dull, but uh, I can tell you when you're in the car, um, it's still pretty exciting and it's still a challenge to get it right. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, Sandown can be um, one of those tracks where because almost anywhere you have a minor um, minor situation, you end in an armco. co. Um, so, and this applies to all categories, not just Formula Ford. But of all the circuits, Sandown's the one where you've got that risk where by Sunday when you're driving home, you look at it and go, Well, I did about 15 laps that weren't behind a safety car, including <laughs> Friday practice, right? And, and that's, um, mind you, you have others there where you've gone flag to flag in every session, you go, How good was this? Um, which is a shame because Sandown's just an epic tractor drive. It's an amazing circuit to drive, but it's, it's the one where, you know, there's repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, um, you know, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the nature mm-hmm. of the circuit. Right. There's, there's no easy way to fix that.
0: Paul, there's a, a uh, aside to you, you touched on it right back at the beginning. You're a competitive bloke. And I think you've also said that most of that competitive urge lives within you. Um, you are one of the most fittest blokes I know. Um, you're not the youngest bloke in motorsport I know, but your training regime and I guess your enjoyment, and you can correct me on this, but your enjoyment of training rivals the drivers that you're racing against that are, I'm going to say, I'll be generous here, half your age. Yeah. Your, your physical training is, is absolutely amazing.
2: Yeah, look, thank you. I mean, half their age. A couple of years ago, we worked out at Sandown that I was two years old with combined age of my three teammates. <laughs> so half, half is somewhat generous. <laughs>
1: uh, He's being kind. He was
2: being very kind. Look, <laughs> uh, it certainly... Um, I do take the fitness aspect of it very, very seriously. And that's a lot around my motorsport. It's also around the fact that um, you know, Jillian and I like going um hiking, bushwalking, multi-day hikes. And, you know, I'm 54 now, not getting any younger. So the better the better I can keep myself in terms of physical fitness, the longer I can enjoy all those aspects of, of life. Um, but it is something and I suppose that training really ramped up through twenty 20 and 2021 when there wasn't a lot else you could do and I need to do something to cut from going barking mad um but it it is something where I yeah I, I challenge myself I always have been competitive um sport has been a big part of my life um when I was growing up it was the thing that was you know it was comparatively cheap you could do it and it was a competitive outlet my dad's uh, dad was Hungarian that's where the uh, crazy surname comes from. And uh, so, you know, he had us in soccer shoes, football boots before we were crawling. Um, so I played a lot of soccer as a goalkeeper. And then the last few years um, in central Queensland playing um, rugby union, always played rugby league, squash, cricket, indoor cricket, anything that was going. So so that side of it is just, um, you know, I, I get a lot of, um satisfaction a lot of calm and a lot of mental health management from maintaining the fitness and training on my maths
0: then because we've had richard davison who is a victorian current victorian formula ford champion in the Kent yeah. engine cars on my reckoning you've got 15 years and you'll have a championship paul zitty
2: don't know about that richard is actually a good driver right so <laughs> 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 that on his side as well Uh, don't be don't be so hard on
0: yourself paul you can you can race when you're given the opportunity you race as hard as the rest of them there's not there's no lack of ability Um, there mate
2: it look it's the the one thing that i will um that i you know i suppose there is a takeaway there um it's uh call it kahunas call it bravery whatever um you know, when I when I overlay my data on the the, the quick guys, um, the technical aspects of it, um, I'm not lousy. I'm not that far away. But, you, you know, you look at something like Phillip Island, turn one. Um, those guys have just got crazy commitment. And um, I just can't get my 54-year-old brain to get my feet and hands to do what I absolutely know the car can do. Um, I'm even reasonably sure I can do it. Uh, but that connective brain to uh, <laughs> controls just. Doesn't there,
1: there's up. a there's a little valve in there that uh, shuts just at the wrong time. It's like his yeah. commentary, really. It's just just like how he <laughs> <laughs> comments. Yeah,
0: he, well, he's reaching for greatness, and then it's just ah, oh, what's he done? No, what was
2: that? What was um, that that look, wasn't
0: I, even English, Paul. What are you doing?
2: <laughs> I I do have I I do have the unofficial. Lap record at Phillip Island for a Spectrum, though, which I'll I'll cling to that claim to fame. Um, Is that your two-litre
0: uh, US Formula Ford car, two, was it?
2: Two-litre car, yeah. Have yeah. you still got that one? Still got that, absolutely. That, wow. That's still down at the factory. Mike would like me to get some of my crap out of his factory. He <laughs> uh, could have half the factory space if I'd bring all my junk home. <laughs> but, yeah, no, i still got that one, 33.6 that's, that's Pilot. pretty so quick
1: I'm really... six. that's quick
2: that's yeah, quick and pinned through turn one even for a silly old bloke like me so it was that was amazing mitch martin um was spannering the car that day and we took a i think it was like a, a one of the weekdays one of the the garth rainsbury days and just that probably stands out as one of uh, as a highlight probably one of the best days in a race car that was just amazing
0: so the that car. Let's just touch on that now that you've raised it. That's a car that was built for the US marketplace, um, and Spectrum did um, drop into that marketplace for a little while. There is, yeah. is you know, is that that's something? I guess you could run it in the AFO series. That's that put Tim Macros sort of breathing life into. Could you?
2: Yeah, hundred percent, and and so you're spot on. Formula Ford two thousand. Um, you know, you guys probably know. I don't know about your your listeners, but Formula Ford 2000 has been around for nigh on as long as Formula Ford has been. And the the, the thought was that, that you've got your Formula Ford chassis, you replace the 1600 Kent motor with the two liter Pinto motor, making around about 150 horsepower compared to, or about 140 compared to the 110. Put some slicks and some wings on it, and you had your next stepping stone and Um, For a long while in in Europe, I mean, Centre famously um, went through Formula Ford 1600, Formula Ford 2 litre, Formula 3, then on to Formula 1. While Formula Ford 1600 back at that era didn't really kick on in the States, Formula Ford 2000 did. And we had a number, you know, David Bernard, Jason Bright, both famously went over and raced and won championships in in the u.s at that time um so once mike was selling the formula ford 1600s in america and winning races and championships there was a a request to do a two-liter car and, and they had quite a bit of success probably you know timing is everything and it was just at the time where that formula ford 2000 in america really pivoted back to being a uh, almost a, a hobbyist class and and your pro masters and your um I think they call it F Pro 2000 or um some of your carbon type cars took over as that um, step so um, but this particular car we we built up as a um, as a testbed to run in Australia and do some testing and um yeah, we, we sort of half owned it, and then at some stage I bought the other half, and it's in the in the toy collection now, and um, just a ton of fun. And spot on, wanted to fit into that Formula Open very, very well. Um, I've just got to get some time and, and and money to just finish off a couple of things on that. And and look, that may well be the yeah you know, the, the the next step is um, rather than chasing these uh, kids in Formula Ford um maybe driving something like that which is a far more comfortable comfortable car for someone of my talent to drive the much more stuck to the ground doesn't uh, slide around all over the place um uh, certainly an easier car and more comforting car to drive
1: there are a couple of them running out here i'm sure there's one in western australia that runs in their formula classic series there's a couple yeah. of a couple of hill climb cars but I think actually the quickest one's got a rotary in it now so we probably don't count that one
2: <laughs> yeah so that's that's um that's there we'll sort of the um uh, the two litre cars uh, you'll note that one's got the narrow side pods on it which they run in the, in the states and so i and I'm sure I won't have an issue with it but I'd probably reach out to the technical people at Motorsport Australia if I was going to run it in formula open um, you know, I'd want their approval to put. Ultimately, it's counterproductive to performance because it's going to make the thing less aerodynamically efficient. But mm. I'd put wider Australian pods on it just to give it some more side impact um, absorption, um, and probably an application to put the um, Kevlar anti intrusion panels on the side as well because running in a, a mixed field with with carbon cars, um, particularly. You know, some of them are reasonably late model with the FIO crash boxes. Um, and, you know, if someone has a an initial impact in one of those and just breaks the tip off the nose cone, well, you've then got a, you know, a spear. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I'd want that extra side impact protection if I was going to go and run in that sort of a mixed field.
0: Paul, well, I touched on your, your time with the Victorian State Series, which has... Um, I guess struggled like everyone did in COVID, but Victoria overall with the ins and outs and different bits and pieces of race meetings, there was um, a lot of late nights and pedaling really, really hard from some very key people, including yourself, to get race meetings going. What's some of your memories of trying to get those those race meetings running, you know, at within, insert state here, they were, everyone was doing it, what was some of the ins and outs of trying to keep racing going during that time?
2: Yeah, well. I mean, you talk about blood, sweat, and tears, you talk about the highs and lows. Um that was just such a tough time. That yeah, you know, I, I suppose for the meetings that fell at a time where there was a known lockdown and you knew that it was just dead in the water, that was disappointing, but you, you sort of Um, you knew that it wasn't going to happen. Unfortunately, in Victoria, it seemed that the lockdowns in our racing calendar were so perfectly aligned that you look at 2020, the championship that wasn't, because we couldn't actually get enough race meetings done to constitute a championship because of the lockdowns. Every one of those meetings was planned to the point where it could have run every one of them the the thousands and thousands of hours that go into putting a race meeting together to make it happen the passion that the car clubs and the directing teams and the clerks of the course and the secretaries put into pulling the events together Uh, and then you know it's we love competing we love going and racing the officials do it for the same passion and love, and their satisfaction is delivering a great race event. So to have the rug pulled out from under them often at the eleventh hour was heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, there was two in particular. And I can't remember the events that were on the Thursday. Was that? Oh, well, tonight we're into lockdown. Hang on a minute, where I've got the trailer loaded and we're
2: yeah into the track. Yeah. Um, it was the sports sedan round at Sandown in in 2020. Yep. Um and then sadly that same event a year later when um I think it was the Tuesday. Yeah, we were back in lockdown. Um and that's you know, that's just heart heartbreaking.
0: Is there anything yeah. out of that where you 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 with that that very tight executive committee and those the organizing clubs can sort of stand up and say, you know, everyone we we gave it the red hot go? And the community knew that. I guess. The payback was when the world opened back up again. Um, and I can only speak from the Victorian side of things. Gaz, you might have something more on the New South Wales end of things, but the community just jumped at it. It was like I cannot wait to get back in the room with all my like-minded buddies and get 40 cars. And uh, we're not like-minded or buddies right at that point in time, but when we're in the pits, it was just this
1: massive community outpouring that of goodwill, wasn't it? Yeah, People were right. just keen to, to get back into racing, I think that's that was the main thing. That just that drought period where they couldn't do anything. But interestingly enough, Queensland ran most of their meetings through that period, it wasn't in, the, but you couldn't come from interstate, that was yeah. the thing. So, you was if you were a local, you were fine.
2: NWA, much the same, right? You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't leave the state, you couldn't have your interstate family and friends come visit, but. Because you can still of, have a race meeting <laughs> because of the because of the I suppose the choices that their their um, politicians and leaders made mm. whilst they were in a bubble of their own. Uh, ultimately, day to day, they wouldn't have known that there was this thing called COVID, right? I think Perth yeah. through the entire thing had one four day lockdown or something. Mm. Uh, whereas you know and and look we, we don't want to head down a political road here and and the only thing I'd say on the matter is, is you, you couldn't have paid me enough to have been a politician no. through that period because there was no, no agree. right answers.
0: Yeah agree. No. I agree I guess my point was Paul that you and your committee that you lead the four, four, five, five whatever it is of you that do it quietly must have been at one point there when we opened up gee, there was some ripper race meetings and there was so much goodwill and I think it's still with us um, now that we lost. We lost some time, but gee, we're busy making it back up again, aren't we?
2: Yeah, yeah, and they are. They're an amazing. They're they're an amazing family. The motorsport community and the, the emails and messages of support and goodwill that we got through that period. And to your point earlier, Daz, hundred percent. They knew the work that we put in. They knew those race meetings were. You know. Cherry right to go. It was just that we weren't able to run them. And they they felt the pain on behalf of the organising committees as well. And nine on three, I think it was just shy of 300 cars running up at Sandown 2022. <laughs> uh, it was just, it just That's huge. Awesome. Mm. It was, yeah.
0: And we couldn't oh, wait, so we live-streamed great. it to the world and, uh, and told everyone how much of a great time we were having, didn't we, Gaz? Oh, sorry, you weren't there, mate. You weren't there. I watched that.
1: it. Yes. You did i actually had to watch it because i had to point out all the mistakes he made
2: well how did you have time
1: i wore the skin off my fingers on the on the text messaging
2: yeah well, that's the upside isn't it guys that uh with the with the live stream you can just go back and you can pause and write those things down and go again, right? Yeah. There's, no way, there's no way you could, unless you're a stenographer or something, perhaps you, <laughs> you might be able to keep up. but.
0: I can't wait to see you race next city and uh, hand you the report at the end of the race for the mistakes you've made. <laughs> oh, I'm coming you. after you now. <laughs> hey,
2: mic me up. I'll commentate. I'll, I'll give you a live update.
0: Hey, um, Uh, this is the part of the podcast which i least enjoy we're we're rapidly running out of time that's the only bit i don't enjoy but the i've I've always got a couple of questions i want to ask and it's always a two-part question and i think you might have answered it but we'll we'll, you cast your memory back your single best moment at a at a race event look it could be back in your gemini it could be in your xb at willow bank or, or something that you you know when you're when you're as old as Richard Davidson winning state championships, or even um, like Bob Middleton in his 80s still racing, you go, "That was that was it. That was the 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 most heartwarming, the most um, success, whatever it might be." I'll leave that with you. Right. And the second one is a person involved with the sport that you arrive at the track and you see their back of their head, and you go, "Oh no, I don't <laughs> want to deal with that particular individual." This weekend
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes the, the second one might be best saved um, for my memoirs to be published after i die so, um the, the first one if, if we're talking a race if we're talking about racing in general um I'll, I'll give you three answers there and you get it into whichever one you want um in a racing car, uh, I think I touched on it, that day at Phillip Island in the two litre car, first time experiencing slicks and wings. Um, that was just an epic day. I, and I genuinely feel it's the best I've ever driven in my life as well. I just, I, I, I was in, in you know, talk about being in a zone, just in a purple patch, just really happy with the car. So that, that day just stands out um, looking at the wallpaper uh on, on one of the monitors here as well, which is that car. And it's just yeah, epic. So that that stands out. Racing and driving myself um would be uh 2018 uh island magic would um be on a Thursday and a Friday practice and that's probably as competitive as I've ever been um you know which is sort of mid-pack for me but right in there in amongst a, a A group of people, uh, group of young guys racing and dicing. So that's um, it. Culminated in me on my lid at Lukey, but let's not go there. Up to (laughs) then, it would be. I
1: was going to ask you what your worst race was. That must be it. same one. (laughs) Same one. (laughs) Three part question. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but the um, but overall uh, most epic motorsport memory will be. Um, and I'm sitting in the um in the office in Glen Waverley at I don't know what time it was maybe two or three in the morning watching the live timing on MST timing uh, when John Martin took a victory at Brand's Hatch the first time we'd ever taken a spectrum to race in England and uh yeah just about I uh, think there's still um, still damage in the ceiling uh, when <laughs> when that race, uh when you know, he took the win, uh, I just went cocoa bananas. Gillian um just about had a heart attack because she was sound asleep. And I'm yelling like a banshee and a, and a crazy man. Uh, that was that was pretty special. I think
0: Mike listed the same moment actually. I he did. To go, he yeah, did list that yeah. one. Yes. He did list the same one. So uh yeah the um obviously there was a huge lead up in, in the brayside workshop not getting to, to that point with with John and you still work with John or, or, or you know, John's still around. You're the garage with the Spectrum guys. He was there at Island Magic, wasn't he? Yep, yeah,
2: And, you know, basically a, a neighbor just down the road. Yeah. He's in, uh, you know, they're originally from Blackwater at that time. Um, uh, he's out on the coast at Yapoon now, but, you know, Blackwater, uh, a few hours drive from Bilo Willow. He used to have in school sports carnivals with them growing up. So it was, yeah, you, know, you talk about the small world—a uh, life I thought I'd well and truly left behind—and then you get this phone call one day from this guy from Blackwater. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. <I'm really>
0: <laughs> and uh, Paul, the, the the protagonist, the the one that got under your skin, that you 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 just don't like seeing at the racetrack.
2: Oh wow! Um, You're
1: going to leave. Well, it, that can it? that can also be your, your your greatest rival, the one that uh, you've died the most with. Yeah, that's yeah, his well, own we- brain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh. That's what I keep saying to people. Like they, they look at me and roll their eyes at some of the things I say. It's easy. It's not so bad for you guys. You can go away. I have to live with this. You think I know what's going on? They say you shouldn't well, laugh at your own jokes. The reason I laugh is I normally, you know, I'm hearing things for the first time as well.
0: It, Paul, you're you you're, you're a top shelf human. You're a top shelf racer. What what's on the top shelf of your red wine cellar at the moment, mate?
2: Oh um well we, we pulled the cork out of a nineteen ninety Grange the other night um that we've we've had in the cellar for twenty eight years and um that that drank rather rather nicely. Um
1: I suppose there's none of it left.
0: This and is our new po- this is our new podcast that Paul and I are gonna do, Gaz. This is gonna be about one drinking wank- night red wine
2: wankers with Paul and Gaz.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just a beer drinker, so I can't help you there. Yeah,
2: Pauline and- Paul and Daz. Yeah,
0: wine and cheese with Paul and Daz. Hey, Paul, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing podcast. And um, I've got to say, yourself and your good mate or business partner, commercial friend, whatever you guys are, have been both very generous with your, your time and your, your, your story as well. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time out and uh, I've been watching over your right elbow at a picture of it and center you've got right behind you. So uh, that's kept me excited and going for the last hour and a half or so as well.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, there's, there's plenty of them. And there's another one up on the wall there, which was a photo taken in. Uh, so yeah, look, he's absolute, you know, come to drivers. He's my hero. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but look for me, thank you guys. It's an absolute pleasure to be on here. And, and, and in fact, very, very humbling. I've listened to the, most of the other 39 and you've had real superstars and 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 real people of note. so um, having me on in here, I'm humbled to be uh, a part of a part of this. Uh, keep saying it this for me, I just pinch myself that I've had the involvement and the opportunity to indulge my passion in motorsport. It's I don't see myself as a luminary as the others. I'm just along for the ride.
1: <laughs> well but that's the best way to enjoy it though. that's for sure yeah thank you very much paul really appreciate it
2: thank you gents have a great night thank you
0: well thank you uh very much to paul zitty for joining us on the race fuels grassroots racing podcast a different kind of guest there gaz he's done like he's the triple threat he's the administration block he's the fitness uh coach and he's also the race driver as well, and I guess and a, and a commentator and a commentator and a commercial guy. So uh, yeah. more than
1: triple, that's a quadruple threat. And uh, unlike a lot of us, jack of all trades, and he's a master of them. Yeah, he is. He, <laughs> yeah, he really we're the isn't. master of none. <laughs> he mentioned the word
0: passion a number of times, and that is, um, I guess, the you know, whenever we're talking to someone, that is the thing that shines through. That. Um, there's not a lot of money to be made. In fact, you can lose a whole lot of money in, in motorsport and you do it for the passion, really, don't you?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly do. Um, yeah, that's the way to go. And and he's not um what's the proper what, what way to put it, not overwhelmed by his own ability. Yeah, uh, correct. That's sits, sits, sits sits in at a comfortable level and just does what he does. It reminded me a little bit of uh when you play Microplayers Grand Prix, which I used to do a few years ago, and you knew you couldn't beat them, beat the computer, but if you could set PBs, you're a happy chap. Correct. Yep, yep, absolutely.
0: Gaz, I mentioned at the top, there's not a lot of racing going on um, in the next week or so. Um, I guess in the new year, we jump into things like the lead-up to the the Bathurst 12-hour and, again, the first round of the state championships and stuff. But there was the, the Ken Lee Memorial HQ race at Winton.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, um, that was a uh, four-hour race, 2 hours Saturday, 2 hours Sunday. They actually red flag it at the end of Saturday or bring it under yellows and red flag it. So the race actually continues on the Sunday, so it goes four hours. Two, two driver teams. Uh, winners, Andrew McGilton and Ryan Woods. Uh, they were actually fastest in qualifying. They got beaten in a shootout by Brett Osborne and Brett Osborne and John Baxter was second at the end of the first day, but they were leading, and then they looked like they had a drama. Their lap times really. I tell dropped
0: you what, off. though, Gaz, those four names you just mentioned—they are the absolute gold standard right now in HQ racing, aren't they?
1: Well, I've got to mention the other ones that ended up second: Andrew McLeod and uh, yeah. Rod Rogers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so there's the top six.
0: Top, top um, six, yeah,
1: yeah. They ended up finishing second. Uh, Osborne and Baxter third. As I said, they had a drama, and I think it must have continued into the second day. So, fourth spot went to. Peter Holmes, and uh, who was running with him? Neil Corey from South Australia. That was 16th at the end of the two-hour mark, so they had come up before, so pretty good effort. And uh, fifth spot went to uh, Brad Gardner from Trans Am with Stephen White, co-driving with him. So, Gaz, I reckon that rounds up. The uh, 2023 motor
0: racing year. There's only one thing left to say, and that is a very Merry Christmas to you and yours, Gaz.
1: At, uh... Yeah, and uh, and a Happy New Year to you, you and yours as well. And uh, no doubt there's going to be a couple of kids going to keep you very busy over the festive season.
0: Yes, we will be. Uh, that's for sure. Looking forward to a good break away from work, and um, and looking really looking forward to a uh, big. 2024, when uh, of course the grassroots racing podcast will return, we're not exactly sure what uh what dates we've got obligations for at the moment, but we'll have a few days off. What do you think?
1: Yeah, well, we look at it if we can do, we we might uh to jump ahead of ourselves, get one out of the the way so it's there ready to roll, so we can start the new year off fresh. Got it, don't want to let down our (laughs) fan.
0: Your missus. Yeah, that's it. Happy, <laughs> happy you know, Christmas, no, no, Gaz. More, more
1: likely, your, your daughter. Happy Christmas,
0: Gaz, <laughs> and uh, awesome new year to you and yours. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you all. Listeners, thank you very much for joining us right through, well, 2022,
1: 2023, and uh, into 2024. We'll see you in the new year. Yeah, i right, well, forward to it. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. And to all the listeners out there that have uh, tuned in at some stage, all the best to them as well. Bye from Gaz. You've just listened to a Speed Cafe Podhub production.